0: It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Worzer. We could see record-breaking warmth today. We're talking 60s in February. Is this the end of winter? We could see some snow tomorrow, but for one resort owner, he's pulling the plug on ice fishing season. We'll check in with him after a disappointing winter. And with this warm weather, what's the impact on Minnesota's migratory birds? We'll talk to a local climate expert. Our resident doctor is back for another edition of Vital Signs. We'll get his opinion on changing COVID isolation guidelines and measles cases that are popping up in Minnesota. Plus, she's known for the Bechtel test, but Minnesota native Allison Bechtel also made her mark as a cartoonist. More than 40 years later, she'll be back home sharing her story. All that and a whole lot more right after the news.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Sang. After losing the Republican primary in her home state over the weekend, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is looking ahead to other presidential contests. NPR Sarah McCammon reports Haley is campaigning in Michigan on the eve of that state's presidential primary.
2: Haley's loss in her home state to former President Donald Trump was expected, but it underscores her campaign's struggle to win even a single nominating contest so far. After casting her ballot near her home in South Carolina on Saturday, Haley said she has no plans to drop out.
3: My whole goal for running
2: is because you have a majority of Americans who are saying they don't want Donald Trump and they don't want Joe Biden. So as long as you have a majority of Americans saying, please give us a choice, I'm going to continue to fight. I am not going anywhere. Asked about her strategy beyond Super Tuesday, Haley said, quote, that's as far as I've thought. Sarah McCammon, NPR News.
1: Ronna McDaniel, the chair of the Republican National Committee, says she will step down. McDaniel previously said she'd planned to resign from her post after the South Carolina primary. Former President Trump, the frontrunner in the race for the GOP nomination, had said he wanted Michael Watley, chair of North Carolina's RNC, to be RNC chair. The U.S. Supreme Court is considering today's arguments in a case that could help define the future of the Internet. At issue is whether states such as Florida and Texas can force large social media platforms to carry content they find hateful or objectionable. NPR's Kerry Johnson says this is one of the most important First Amendment cases before the high court in a generation.
3: Florida and Texas passed these laws months after the riot at the Capitol in January 2021. At that time, several social media platforms booted former President Donald Trump after the riot, fearing that his messages could provoke more unrest. But the state said they worried about big social media companies censoring conservative views. Kerry
1: Johnson reporting. European leaders Are meeting in Paris today to express solidarity with Ukraine. Here's NPR's Joanna Kisses.
0: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has made securing more arms his top priority for 2024. His defense minister said at a forum over the weekend that only half of promised military aid to Ukraine arrives on time. In an interview with NPR, Ukraine's Minister of Strategic Industries, Oleksandr Komushin, said Ukraine already has the know-how to make weapons and artillery that will cover basic needs, but it lacks funds to scale up.
1: We already need more funding for local procurement. That's the challenge we have for this year. All the rest is quite doable.
0: Komushin says Ukraine is partnering with Western companies to help with investment. Joanna Kissas,
1: NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News.
4: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. This is NPR.
0: Around Minnesota right now, skies are blue and it's bright today. Highs will be in the mid-50s and lower 60s, record-setting in many places. A little cooler near Lake Superior, but still way above normal. Chance for rain and snow across northern Minnesota today. At noon in downtown Duluth, it's 36, it's 47 in St. Cloud, and outside the Flame Theater in Wells, Minnesota, it's 53. I'm Kathy Warzer with Minnesota News Headlines. Three juveniles have been arrested in a robbery spree in Minneapolis that included four robberies in less than 20 minutes yesterday in various parts of South Minneapolis. Minneapolis police say this is a similar spasm of robberies that occurred earlier this month when 14 robberies happened over several hours in Minneapolis. Police think two groups of juveniles were working in tandem and could be connected to those earlier crimes. St. Paul teachers have set March 11th for a potential strike. While both sides continue to negotiate, the school district says both sides are still far apart. St. Paul teachers went on strike four years ago. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is scheduled to campaign in the Twin Cities later today. Mark Sadeklik has more. Despite
5: once again losing out to former Republican President Donald Trump, the latest defeat in her home state, Haley is vowing to continue on with her campaign for the GOP presidential nomination. Haley will speak at a rally at a South Minneapolis hotel early this evening. Trump has won every Republican presidential primary so far. He defeated Haley by 20 percentage points on Saturday in South Carolina. Haley's Minnesota stop is part of a broader push to gain support in more than a dozen states, Minnesota among them, that will cast primary ballots one week from
0: tomorrow on what's called Super Tuesday. I'm Mark Zdecklick. We started off winter week, and it's coming to an end with a whimper. The temperatures in much of the state are soaring today to an unprecedented 50 to 60 degrees plus Today Rogers on Red along with many other resorts on Upper Red Lake and around Minnesota will end its ice fishing season early. The ice just won't be safe anymore with the high temperatures eating away at it. Joining us on the line right now is the co-owner of Rogers on Red, Pat Frost. Now we talked to Pat back in December after folks in his region made some news when a chunk of ice broke off stranding some anglers. He joins us now to talk about the rest of the season. Hey Pat, thanks for coming back, how are
4: you? Well, very well, Kathy. Thank you for, for having me back.
0: Absolutely. Well, I gosh, it's been since uh, December 21st, the first day of winter when we talked to you. And it sure, um, winter had a hard time getting its toe hold. Uh, it doesn't look like it's really done much since that time. How was the season for you?
4: Oh, like a lion? Well, not so much. Yeah, I think it's more like bring your suntan lotion if we're fishing today, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's very warm. But, you know, uh, I don't know if a Mother Nature gave us just enough, Kathy, just to, uh, to keep things safe, to uh, not really give the resort owners up here uh, a reprieve, By all means, you know, uh, I'm sure everyone was checking diligently uh, like we were here of ice, you know, uh, sporadic ice through the uh, season. But, you know, overall, I think, gosh, we're safe uh, um, and fish. Fishing was fantastic. I don't know why the water clarity was so clear up here, you know, eight feet out and still seeing bottom. And if that had a reflection on. Uh, the walleye and crappie aspect of it, but by golly, it was, sure was uh, clear, very clear water, and with no snow on it, uh, no, it was great for ice skaters. Huh. <laughs> it was it was a good winter for that.
0: <laughs> okay, well, you see, you you seem like you're kind of a, a glass, uh, you're you're kind of optimistic here, uh, a glass, you know, half full. Um, how? But this seems pretty early for the end of the season, though. That's got to hurt a little bit.
4: Well, actually, uh, not so much. Uh, A little bit bittersweet. Actually, uh, the season, it would have been really lovely if uh, they extended. I can remember in the years past where DNR and whoever the folks up there that make those decisions would extend a season because of – A rough year I think twice in my time I can so I was kind of hopeful that that would be but by golly if it isn't uh midnight of last night is the state coming to an end so we're right on schedule with that but uh the crappies you know usually then you would uh uh you would focus on uh crappies and perch
0: panfish
4: aspect of the of the game here
0: Oh, okay. Yes, exactly. Um, and I'm wondering, though, and I know you do a lot of business and, and people love coming up to your place because of the walleye, you know, ice fishing for walleye. It, what, what percentage of your business relies on money coming in from those ice fishing experiences?
4: Oh, it's everything. Good grief. Uh, I would say the winter time uh, to summer, and we also have campsites, you know, uh, um, in the summer also here, um, Uh, But the winter, I would have to say, I'm looking at Tony right now, I'm going to talk out my butt here a little bit, but is it uh, 70% of our income? I would have to say 65 to 70% of our income comes from the winter ice fishing, uh, without a doubt, yep.
0: So when you guys finally got out there, when the ice was pretty decent, when I talked to you, it sounds like you then, from December 21st or so, when we talked to about now, looks like you um, you got a fair amount of ice fishing in then.
4: Uh, well, we did. Yeah, well, this notorious crack, which you're kind of battling a crack, you know, of one sort or another every year of my seven years of being up here, Um there's always a crack. wall by this crack that we had this year, but it uh, uh, it was a tough one. It didn't want to heal. It didn't want to. Well, no cold it, weather, really, you know. So we're moving the right. bridges. So we got, you know, uh, steel bridges. So we're, uh, we ended up moving it maybe five times in a month. You know, the area just gets unsafe and then you just move it down the crack at the next. Uh, good spot that it looks like to throw the bridge back up. But that's why after this uh, interview or the talking, not interview, because now we're just talking, lady. We're just talking. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. Joe and I are going to head on out. We're uh, we're at the bar down here. I can't say what a relief and joyous uh, at the end of the season. It's a sad day, you know, but it's also a nice day where, You have, you know, it's like one big kegger party, you know. Uh, You want to be responsible, you know. You you want to keep an eye on your guests for not drinking too much. And and if they are, well, let's get the keys for that person, you know. But now amp that up for a resort aspect. It's a lot of responsibility. And uh, well, that's what I'm feeling right now is just, uh, (laughs) oof, it's over. My goodness, it's over. And uh, But then, you know, I know in a couple days I'm going to miss it, but, you know, people getting stuck, you know, the, uh, trucks breaking down, fish house problems, uh, uh, no medical stuff this year, which is fabulous, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, so you're just kind of the liaison for Re- Rogers and then your guests that come out through your resort, and I'm sure it's the same for every resort owner. It's just a lot of, lot of not a burden by all means, but a lot of responsibility that you got to take care of these. You got their back, you know. So, uh, so that's just a nice little break right now is what I'm feeling.
0: So, for folks who are not familiar, so obviously Red Lake's big, big lake. and and we were talking about that crack that was in the ice, and that you said that prior that it's it's been there, you know, this happens almost every year because you get some kind of a crack in the ice, and that's why you got your your bridges, your big bridge that you got. So you're gonna drag that in to land here later on this afternoon, and then it's all over. Um, what's next? I mean, I know you've got summer guests, right?
4: Yes, it is. We now uh, we're too early to uh start cleaning up. Uh next is getting geared up, uh um work on some docks. Um we got a new fish cleaning house in. Uh, we just converted uh uh the old lodge that was built in nineteen forty five. Uh we converted that over into uh the sleeping eight, uh bunkhouse, if you would. Primitive, mm-hmm. you know, no water but electric and um so we're just excited to be renting that out uh, this spring. Um, and then just a lot of work and some repairs. And, but, you know, on the flip side, you know, with the bad business, uh, the, one of the main things out here um, is plowing, you know, plowing. You know, you got to our road is usually, you know, a four car highway, you know, out there, four lane, a four lane road um, mm-hmm. is the size of my road. And when uh, you knew average, I'm going to say about 20 to 30 plowings a winter that I was even debatable to plow the one time that I did. And so, oh, thank you, Jesus. Are you kidding? That's wow. No breakdowns in the truck. So, I mean, yeah, it's bad. You know, uh, it's not bad, you know, for revenue aspect. But then there's always uh, things to be thankful for. And, yeah.
0: and, uh, and it was just such definitely a weird...
4: is one of those.
0: Yes, and you know, when we and I first talked, as you say, uh, you know, there was those ice chunks that were, folks were on the ice, big chunks would break away, and they'd float out into the middle of the lake. I mean, it was just kind of a, it was a difficult situation to begin with. So it sounds like it um, improved a little bit. It's gonna end a little early, but if the fishing was pretty good, who knows about next year?
4: It it will be, and if if the numbers just keep on producing, what a lovely lake! You know, really, you got to give thanks to the lake. You know, I don't want to get all spiritual, or (laughs) but give thanks, one should, you know, because the Red Lake is just a gorgeous uh, fishery. You know, it it just keeps itself uh, sustained. You know, Um, so hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, a good time to buy a resort and. What I've heard, you know, we got nothing but 15 years of greatness coming off of this lake, and and the beautiful thing is, it's one of the first early, uh, the uh, early lakes to freeze, you know, in the whole state, you know, well, with, uh, or you know, with being a top five walleye contender, you know, like Malax or Leech or Lake of the right. Woods. You know, uh, Red Lake is right up there also, and and we are the first lake to freeze, in my opinion. You know, Thanksgiving is usually a go. So everything we experience this winter happens in November. You know, it's done. It's all locked up, you know, uh, the seven, and it's only been seven years for me. But, you know, with a recap on this winter, um, this everything we experience should have been all experienced in November before we even open the doors. Hmm. you know um, um crazy winter so isn't it drive, though? and we're usually driving by december 8th and this year we didn't get out there till christmas you know so it was a good three weeks behind schedule for everything and um, well pat yeah.
0: i know you're busy you got to get that bridge in this afternoon then you have to go celebrate the end of the season so i appreciate it thank you so much <laughs>
4: well thank you so much Kathy. take care the invite's still open. We uh, all right. Our restaurant well. went great, and uh, come on up, <laughs> and I'll buy you a burger.
0: Okay, and a beer. Thanks, Pat. Pat Frost, co-owner of Rogers on Red. Mm. Time for a Minnesota Music Minute. This is the band One Less Guest with their song Pieces of You. Their band formed in Duluth, but now they're based in Los Angeles.
2: Radio asking if I'm lonely As I put the car in drive I start to answer but
6: I'm cut off by the silence Coming from the passenger side
2: Trying to think of what to say
0: It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Warzer. Time for our segment, Vital Signs. Every month, we'll be talking about topics that are important to your health and take a deep dive into medical news or what's top of mind at the doctor's office. Joining us right now is Dr. John Hallberg, a family medicine physician at Mill City Clinic in Minneapolis and a professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Hey, thanks for joining us again.
7: Oh, my pleasure, Kathy. Thank you.
0: Say, I'm a little confused, and I'm thinking there may be listeners as confused over the CDC's COVID isolation guidance. Um, Right now, the CDC advises folks to stay at home for at least five days if they're positive. Now they're thinking that's not necessary. What do you think?
7: Kathy? Kathy? We're confused also. Um, When we got this news, (laughs) one of my (laughs) triage nurses just about lost it um, because, you know, we've been sort of towing this this line of of, this is sort of the thing that we do, that if you get it, you've got to be home for five days. And there's nuances around that. And then now we're hearing this. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, of course, I think to some extent it's acknowledging kind of what people are doing anyway people are having a hard time isolating if you live at home you don't have a lot of rooms you've got several people you really can't be isolated and i think people are just finding it harder and harder as time goes by to adhere to that that 5 day rule
0: okay yes i understand it is hard but what does it do for the spread of this
7: illness well, that's the thing, right? It's it's like the recommendation is sort of acknowledging what people are doing. And I know that a number of people are really concerned about this because they're saying it's really not following the science. You know, nothing changed about the transmissibility of this. We know that people are shedding virus. So it's, it's sort of acknowledging what people are doing, but not really taking into account the science of it. That being said, It's really, I suppose one could argue, common sense or kind of what we've been recommending for people who have had colds over the years or influenza. And, you know, probably bottom line is, like, like, if you're feeling sick, please don't come to work, don't go to school, stay at home, rest. Um, But, you know, this is just, yeah, I think it's just heading in a way that is trying to align itself more with what we've been doing for for decades in terms of recommendations.
0: Mm, Okay. So let's talk about another infectious disease, if we could, here, measles. Uh, Recently, the State Department of Health reported its third measles case. I remember last year there weren't any measles cases, but the year before there was an outbreak, 22 cases. Are we looking at a potential outbreak here with just the three cases?
7: Oh, you certainly hope not. I mean, any case of measles is not a good thing. Measles is probably the most transmissible virus there is. It is so easy to catch if you haven't been immunized. It stays in the air for a long, long time. Um, you know that it's We had two cases and then now it's up to three. So it's not like this huge arc upward, but um, too soon to tell with that. But I think that, you know, like so many things, we were so careful for the better part of three into four years. And now viruses are spreading, of course. And this most certainly is because you've got folks who are behind with immunizations or haven't gotten them, haven't chosen not to receive them. Talking about kids, of course. Um, Yeah, we're going to be watching this very, very carefully.
0: You mentioned kids, of course, being the main focus of this. But can anybody get measles? I would presume yes, if you're not vaccinated, right?
7: Yeah, I mean, well, sure, absolutely. I mean, if you're an adult and you've never been vaccinated, you've never had it, you could most older adults uh, born let's say before the 1950s certainly have had exposure to these various diseases and carry some immunity but the thing is i mean as we get older we're, we discovered this with pertussis for example that you know we are immunizing against it but as the years go by immunity wanes and then you can get that and we thought pertussis whooping cough really as an adult but it but it can happen and so certainly you know, the the more young people, children, who are not getting immunized, it creates a pool so that this virus can, you know, have a, a bigger home and then absolutely spread to the broader population.
0: So I was reading about this outbreak of measles, right? It was another article dealing with measles and um it was really eye opening because I have a feeling that most people don't understand how serious measles can be. I mean you mentioned it's a highly infectious, right? Um, and, yeah. and some of the, um, never read the comments on a story, I know, but reading the comments of this on this particular story, it was clear that the vast majority of those who read the story just, just didn't really buy into the fact that this can be a very serious disease. What do you say to patients who are like, yeah, measles, whatever, it's a childhood disease, no big deal?
7: Well, it's all historical context. I mean, I, I'm so... Um grateful that we are alive when we're alive, that children aren't dying in childhood from infectious diseases that are readily preventable by giving immunizations. Measles is one of those. You know, I remember from medical school that we talked about the three C's of conjunctivitis, coryza and cough, and choriza's sort of watery eyes and just looking kind of miserable, and then the rash. And it's completely preventable. And so I think that that's just, it's just the time in history that we're at right now where people just don't see this, don't know anything about it. Many and most clinicians don't know much about it because we just simply don't see it. It is a absolute triumph of effective immunizations that this is no longer something we have to think about. So I can see why people aren't too worried about it. It's just because we don't have any experience with it.
0: it. Can it be fatal, by the way?
7: Oh, yeah, it can be fatal. I mean, good news is the vast majority of the time, it's not fatal, but it can be.
0: So we were talking last month about uh, the warm weather impact on cold and flu season. So um, we're going to talk about something that is a, is another warm weather issue, uh, and of course, I cannot believe that I'm even going to bring this up at this time of the month. But uh, ticks, already ticks have been spotted outside because of this really warm weather, you no know, snow cover, that kind of thing. Um, oh, what what. What do you suggest, <laughs> I hate ticks, what do you suggest if folks are going to go out for a hike, take the dog out for a walk in the grass, somewhere where ticks can be found, even so early in the season?
7: So technically, if you're going to be out in a grassy area, you should wear light clothes so that you can spot the tick. They're very dark in appearance, so they would pop out if they're on light clothing. It should be long clothing, so pants and a long sleeve shirt, tuck their pants into their socks, Um But if you pause for a second and think about that, that's a, you know, how many of us are actually going to do that? Um, Maybe a wiser thing, easier thing is to spray some bug spray around your ankles with DEET on their shoes and around the ankles and socks. Uh, Most ticks are going to latch on or jump on uh, lower in our bodies. Um, I too hate ticks. I hate the idea of a parasitic relationship Uh, with the human being. (laughs) Um, It's just awful to, to, yeah. Think about. Um, so, yes. I mean, so there are things to do and then there's probably practical ways to, to get around that. Um, yeah.
0: So, of course, ticks can carry Lyme disease. Right. And um, so mm-hmm. many people that develop Lyme's disease say, oh, don't don't go there. It's just really awful. It just some of the symptoms can be really tough to deal with. How do you know that you have the disease? Do you need to go run to your doctor to get tested? How does that work?
7: Most ticks are not the black legged ticks. We used to refer to these as deer ticks. So most ticks are the common wood tick, dog ticks. Um, So there's, first of all, there's that. Not every deer tick carries Lyme disease. So just a way of saying that that not every single tick is gonna result in any kind of infection and and certainly something like Lyme disease, which is the most common tick-borne illness. So I think if you've discovered a tick, it's been there for 24 to 36 hours, it's clearly had a meal. First of all, you want to take it off using a tweezers as close to the skin as you can. Ideally, save it. Most of our clinics have microscopes. I've done this. We take a tick, look under the microscope, make sure it looks like a black-legged tick. And then we can decide, you know, do we treat empirically? Um, If we catch it early, we can treat with a medication like doxycycline, just a couple pills together, and that's it. Um, If it's like someone's had an infection, and if you know, anyone listening gets a rash, the classic bullseye rash, the erythema migrans rash. I mean, we will probably treat that twice daily for 10 days with an antibiotic like, like doxycycline. I think by and large, gone are the days where people, you know, had a mysterious illness and it turned out to be Lyme disease. I think we have a much higher sort of sensitivity to it, both from the public standpoint and from the clinician side. Like if we You know, someone's been outside, they have aches and pains, a little fever, stiff joints. They recall having a rash. Well, we're going to be thinking Lyme disease and then do a blood test. The blood test is very effective at detecting whether someone had Lyme disease or has Lyme disease and uh, whether treatment is necessary.
0: I know you are busy. Thank you, as always, for talking to us.
7: Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll
0: have you back on next month. Dr. John Holberg is a family medicine physician at Mill City Clinic and a professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Sunshine around the region here today. We're looking at record setting temperatures perhaps by the end of the afternoon and then snow overnight. (laughs) We'll talk about that a bit later on. Joining us right now with a look at the news is Emily Reese. Emily?
8: Hi, Kathy. Human Rights Watch says Israel is not complying with an order issued by the United Nations top court because it's failing to provide urgently needed aid to desperate people in the Gaza Strip. The rights group accusation comes one month after a landmark ruling in The Hague ordered Israel to moderate its war. In its ruling last month, the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to follow six provisional measures. Israel denies its restricting the entry of aid and has instead blamed humanitarian organizations operating inside Gaza. Hungary's parliament has ratified Sweden's bid to join NATO, bringing an end to more than 18 months of delays. Hungary's government submitted the protocols for approving Sweden's entry into NATO in 2022, but the matter had stalled in Hungary's parliament over opposition by governing party lawmakers. Unanimous support among all NATO members is required to admit new countries, and Hungary is the last of its 31 members to give backing to Sweden's bid for entry. Donald Trump has appealed his $454 million New York civil fraud judgment, challenging a judge's finding that he lied about his wealth as he grew the real estate empire that launched into stardom in the presidency. Trump's lawyers filed a notice of appeal today. The appeal ensures that the legal fight over Trump's business practices will persist into the thick of the presidential primary season as he seeks to clinch the Republican presidential nomination in his quest to retake the White House. And late musician George Michael has been minted into a set of of commemorative coins, the late, well, not himself, but his image has. The coins made by Britain's Royal Mint show Michael in his trademark aviator-style sunglasses with a fretboard and black and red audio waves. Prices start at just shy of 20 U.S. dollars or above 6700 U.S. dollars for a limited-edition two-ounce gold coin. George Michael had a banner year last year with a critically acclaimed Netflix documentary and an induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He died in 2016 at 53. Kathy.
0: All right, thanks, Emily. Mm -hmm. Still February, but it feels like spring is knocking on our door. And with it comes the return of birds that migrate through Minnesota every year, many of them following the Mississippi River. Some of these species are returning in smaller numbers because of threats they're facing here or somewhere else along their path. And this is a global trend. The United Nations recently came out with its first report on the state of the world's migratory species and the findings were grim. Half of migratory species around the world are in decline and a fifth are at risk of extinction. Joining us right now to talk about the state of migratory species that move through Minnesota is Olivia LaDee. She's the regional administrator of the Midwest Climate Adaptation Center, which is based at the University of Minnesota. Olivia, welcome. Hi,
5: thank you, it's really happy to be
0: here. Well, I'm glad you could take the time. Thank you so much. You know, just today, I was thinking to myself, I I thought I saw a bird that I only see in spring, and I thought, no, it can't possibly be here. It's just too early. Have you heard of birds starting to fly back a little normal than earlier because of this weird winter?
5: Well, um, as we see earlier springs, yes, we do see some birds that are cute. Typically, the ones that are shorter distance migrants um, are more likely to respond to warmer conditions um, sooner, um, taking advantage of that weather. Um, the challenge is if they get here and then we get a cold snap, which would be normal, um, and if they've started nesting earlier, then they would run into problems.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, Have you noted or seen any bugs showing up earlier, trees budding, that kind of thing? Would that have an impact on bird migration?
5: So um, for some species, they are really tied. So for some birds, they're really tied to particular insect availability, particular food resources. Um, And one of the concerns that we're um, looking at in terms of climate change is the disconnect or asynchrony between those two things. So sometimes they are able to track those food resources, the insect hatches, and sometimes they're not. They're not able to read earlier in response to the insects being available earlier.
0: I did not know that you started your career in climate science with a migratory bird that has been seen in Duluth, a piping plover. (laughs) Tell me about the bird.
5: Uh, yeah, that's right. So not unlike um, some of these birds, I came here to Minnesota from South Louisiana because of the opportunity to work um, in the Cuthbert Lab um, at University of Minnesota, where they work on the Great Lakes piping plover. Um, it's a small migratory endangered shorebird. Um, it's, the population is now largely confined to the shores of Lake Michigan, but uh, there's frequent spotting of um, individuals or pairs in Duluth where folks get really excited. Um, but I, you know, a lot of times we, when we think about animals, we think about where they are now and where they are in our backyard. But I was interested, again, as a Louisiana resident, a really natural interest in the non-breeding season. So where they spend most of their time, which is not with us in the Great Lakes. Um, and so really looking at the Gulf of Mexico um, coast is where I I ended up spending quite a bit of my time for um, my graduate work.
0: So... What threats are these little birds facing?
5: So they habitat loss um, and disturbance on, on the non breeding grounds. So if you think about sharing the beach with thousands of tourists, are major challenges to them. And those wintering and stopover sites really are what might be influencing their survival. Not necessarily whether or not their nests do really well on their breeding grounds. And so some of these places are really important for these birds and they have what we call site fidelity where they go back to the same locations every year Um, and some of these are barrier islands where they are really vulnerable to hurricanes and sea level rise so one example is the the chandler islands which are part of breton national wildlife refuge Um, it's one of the oldest um, refuges national wildlife refuges in the u.s and you have hundreds of thousands of um, migratory birds, including piping plovers, that will use those islands, um, but they've lost nearly 90% of their landmass mass um, over the past 200 years because of intense weather events or hurricanes, which affect them, and then they, they need time to rebuild. Um, so really concerned about, especially those barrier islands and those um, threats to the non-breeding areas.
0: I'm wondering about other migratory songbirds, perhaps. Can we talk about that? Um, are there other species that are facing threats?
5: Sure, so if we think about uh, grasslands in the Midwest, which are really, really important, and we think about emblematic grassland birds like Western Meadowlarks, for example, uh, they've declined dramatically over the past 50, 60 years. And our landscape's changing, right? Um, These animals are having to share more land, land with more people, so agriculture, energy development, urbanization have really reduced the amount of grassland habitat and we also talk about fragmentation which is breaking up what we do have left into smaller chunks which makes it also more challenging for them to be successful. And climate change acts in concert with these changes in, lands, in, in land use. So for, for the Midwest and grassland birds, eastern meadow larks or monarch butterflies, um, those, those changes in grassland use are really important.
0: I'm wondering, you know, um, are there, can there be efforts to save and to, or to help some of these migratory species adapt to, to the changes they're running into or is it just simply too late?
5: No, certainly. That is one of the things that we focus on at the Midwest Climate Adaptation Science Center is it's what's the science to support responding to um, challenges, especially in response to climate change. So sometimes we can't do anything directly to mediate increased temperatures or changes in precipitation, but we know that we can manage the land to offset some of those changes. So for grassland birds, what we call maintaining connectivity, so having essentially highways for birds to move between patches of land help them to move and find um, better opportunities in, in newer habitats. We also know that the size of those patches, those, those pieces of land are really important and that larger grassland patches help offset some of those negative effects of temperature and precipitation. We also know that programs like the Conservation Reserve Program uh, it provides a way to provide high quality habitat. So for example, for monarchs, we can put milkweed in those or increase the amount of milkweed in the land between those habitat patches in the matrix, which which folks can do in their own backyards.
0: Good, good uh, information there. Say, before you go, as people are uh, going to notice birds that are arriving here in the next, um, well, who knows, next weeks, few weeks anyway. Um, are there migratory species you'll be watching for that we could see more of in Minnesota because of climate change?
5: We are seeing, yes, eventual expansions of some range of species as well as earlier ones. I don't know that I have. I always like watching the juncos, which are out and active. Um, we also hear, hear of things staying much longer, um, even Canada geese. Uh, but i'm gonna I'm gonna be looking out for everything, and yes, pretty soon here.
0: All right. Olivia, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Olivia Liddy is the regional administrator of the Midwest Climate Adaptation Center based at the University of Minnesota.
4: On our Monday, All Things Considered, the search continues for a new U of M president and the three finalists will each get their moment in a public interview. I'm Tom Curran a recap of those interviews and all the news. Join me here weekdays starting at 3.
0: As later this afternoon, U of M Regents are meeting and Tom expects to have a story about maybe the next uh, president of the University of Minnesota. Join him later today. It's 1245 here on Minnesota Now. Something we think about here at NPR News is what words we use to describe certain events, and that has come into focus more with this unusually warm winter. We've even heard from some listeners who have talked about how while some may feel joy when they see sunny skies and 60-degree temperatures in February, that's not the case for everybody. NPR's Emily Bright shares her thoughts on the words we use to describe this
2: winter's weather. I'm Emily Bright, a weekend host on NPR News, and like many Minnesotans, I talk about the weather a lot. Lately, I've been thinking about the words we use to talk about temperature, especially this winter when we've seen so many warmer than average days and broken temperature records. I believe that words matter. Words influence how we feel and how we act. And no matter how much we comment on the weird weather or point to El Nino and climate change, there's part of me, personally, that hears record-breaking as a good thing. Smashing records sounds great. It sounds like winning at the Olympics. And who doesn't want to be above average? Now, it's true that high numbers aren't always positive. Nobody wants high blood pressure. Nobody likes to pay high prices at the grocery store or the gas pump. But I highly doubt your doctor will say you have above-average blood pressure. This is the 10th consecutive warmer-than-normal month in the Twin Cities. Our sense of normal temperature risks becoming a shifting landscape over time. So what should we say? Warm winter temperatures? Mild temperatures? Those are still positive words to describe something decidedly negative, the effects of human-made climate change on our environment. Now, I get it. I love sunshine. It is nice to go outside without those bitter winds making my face hurt. And it's convenient to walk and drive without worrying about slipping on ice or navigating snow. But this is Minnesota, and we sign up for winter here, like it or not. So if we have to pay more attention than usual to the way we talk about our weird, missing winter, it's worth the effort to find the right words. Now we just have to figure out what those words are.
0: That was NPR Weekend host Emily Bright.
2: MPR's mental health initiative, Call to Mind, is gathering stories about postpartum depression. If you'd like to share your experience, email us at calltomind@americanpublicmedia.org, at americanpublicmedia.org and a producer will be in touch. 1248 here
0: in Minnesota now. You may have heard Alison Bechdel's name from the feminist film tool, The Bechdel Test, or through her memoir-turned-Tony Award-winning Broadway musical called Fun Home, but even before those achievements, Bechdel wove herself into the fabric of lesbian cultural identity when she started publishing her comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, in Minneapolis back in 1983, and the strip has gained a worldwide cult following for its game-changing portrayal of American queer life. It went on hiatus in 2008, but it's still getting attention to this day. Alison Bechtel is a MacArthur Genius Award grant recipient, the author of a New York Times best-selling graphic memoir and a Tony Award winner. Next week on March the 4th, she'll be coming back home to speak at St. Thomas University as the Luann Dummer Center for Women, Women's History Month speaker. So we're gonna take you back to a conversation on our show From 2022, when she sat down with Minnesota Now producer Ellen Finn to look back at the roots of her work in Minnesota.
6: Allison, I am so excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Let me just say, I was a teenager growing up in Northern California when I first read the comic Dykes to Watch Out For. I was 17. I was barely out of the closet. And the strip portrayed Minneapolis as some sort of lesbian utopia. So <laughs> <laughs> when I moved here a few years ago, I was surprised to see the tight-knit queer community that you depicted was very real. Oh, cool. So it's still happening. I haven't been back in a while. Yeah. How did you come up with the name Dykes to Watch Out For?
3: Oh, gosh, that was something I didn't even think about. It just like came out of my head one day back in the very early 80s when I was drawing these silly pictures of lesbians to amuse my friends. I just started giving them uh, numbers, like like as if I had a whole series of them and then I in fact created a whole series, but that title just came out of nowhere. and It was funny to me because it had a double meaning, like keep your eye out because these people are exciting, but also (laughs) they might be dangerous too.
6: For folks who don't know, give a little synopsis of the strip's premise and characters.
3: Um, Next to Watch Out For was a sort of soap opera kind of strip in gay and lesbian newspapers. And it centered around a women's bookstore where many of the characters worked. And uh, we followed their lives and loves. But at the same time, We followed current events as they were unfolding and the characters were responding to things going on in the news and and politics.
6: Can you tell me more about how specifically the Twin Cities
3: colored the strip? The big thing was Amazon Bookstore. Um, You know, it's kind of hard to talk about Amazon Bookstore anymore because of how completely the online Amazon wiped it off the map, along with countless other independent bookstores across the country. But long before the giant internet monopoly named for the biggest river in the world, there was Amazon Bookstore named for the mythological tribe of women warriors, and it was Hmm. on Loring Park in Minneapolis. It was the gravitational hub of this subculture of this gay and lesbian community that I was discovering. Authors would come through town and read. We were all very engaged with the writers and poets who were speaking there? There was the bulletin board, which did all the stuff we now do online. You know, roommate and housing notices, announcements for political meetings and actions, all kinds of clubs and organizations. There were the books themselves, of course, and the very knowledgeable and compassionate staff, who were often a literal lifeline for people. So I found much of my real life revolving around this this great bookstore. Uh, so I put that into my comic strip. I created a fictional bookstore called. Mad Women books. And um, that's where a lot of the stuff that happens in the comic strip world originates. Hmm.
6: Sounds like so much of the city informed the strip. I'm curious, what role did you want the strip to play in the city? Were you thinking about that at the time?
3: No, I was not thinking that at all. It was a really different world then. And it's hard to explain it to younger people now because they're just there was we weren't part of the mainstream. We were really, really sidelined and that was fine with us at that time i mean we were starting to think about wanting more access and you know wanting people to to see us wanting to have more visibility but for the time being we were like building up our strength in this parallel subculture uh and to me that was all that my comic strip was about it was like i was showing the lives of people like me and my friends to people like me and my friends It it never occurred to me that it would go further than that. Maybe I had a a dim little hope of that, but it was not part of my agenda. I just wanted to help people like me to see themselves as whole human beings, you know, citizens, members of the the community. Your
6: strip made life visible and especially highlighted lesbians at the forefront of political movements, but also trying to start a family, navigate a career and love what role did you want your strip to play
3: well when i started doing this people were openly hostile toward gay men and lesbians and not just hostile but even worse than that in some ways was the mockery and humiliation like it was just people making fun of us or you know lesbians especially were just thought to be these ridiculous figures you know these crazy old spinsters or i don't even know what but i i felt really indignant about that i i was just as much a regular person as anyone and i i felt like i wanted to show that in my work like me and my friends were deeply humane people actively engaged in changing the world and i, I just wanted to create a record of that you know can i tell you a, a a little side story please when i moved to minneapolis in 1986 i had been drawing dykes to watch out for for a couple of years but it it didn't have those regular characters it just had like I would invent new characters for each episode because I wanted to have regular characters, but I didn't feel like I had the skill to do that, either to draw them recognizably from panel to panel and episode to episode, or to create a really rich, believable, dense world for the characters. But it was soon after I moved to Minneapolis that I felt ready to take that plunge. And I think it was directly a result of living in that incredibly rich, thriving, Subculture where there was so much going on, uh, so much support for my crazy alternative lifestyle. I started writing about a set of characters. I started with Mo, who was this young woman who <laughs> kind of looked like me. Her best friend, who was like the sort of Don Juan character of the strip. Their their friends, the couple Clarice and Tony, and then this whole little community of people started like you know forming a constellation and. I just kept writing about them for many years.
6: What do you make of people who say your characters are maybe not only the first lesbians that they met in their life, but their role models?
3: (laughs) I found I I always was a little disturbed by that. Like, wow, that's a lot of responsibility. So I just tried not to think about that. But it would definitely I would hear from people who who claimed that was true. And certainly, you know, people in small towns. uh, This was way before we had, you know gay and lesbian characters on TV. So um, it was just helpful, I think, for us to see a reflection mm. of the kind of lives we were all leading. Yeah,
6: it's pretty clear from your graphic memoir, Fun Home, and even just the bold title of your strip, you know, Dykes Watch Out For, that you know, you've been out for, as a lesbian from a young age and didn't shy away from the complexity and intimacy of your gay identity and your work. Um, I'm just curious, do you have any
3: advice for people who are struggling to be out these days? I don't know what to tell anyone. I feel like I've, uh, the world is really changing rapidly and I, I don't know what's really happening. Mm. You know, it seems like we're we're very much on the brink of possibly moving backwards in many bad ways. I've always felt like coming out is important and that's what changes people's minds and makes the world safe for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm not making any pronouncements right now.
6: Do you think you'll ever return to those characters, Mo and the,
3: in the crew? You know, I am returning to them in a funny way right now. I'm working on another project uh, where a sort of, not a memoir, but a sort of auto fictional story about my life where those characters are my actual friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because when I, when I first created those characters in a way, I was, I was making them just for myself, just, just. My, they were my imaginary friends, the community I wished that I had. And so I'm kind of resurrecting them now as uh, hmm. my, my friends in late middle age. They're all much older now, of course. <laughs> That's fantastic. I can't wait to see that.
6: Well, thanks so much for the work that you've done. It really has changed my and, and many people I know's lives. So, so thank you so much, Allison.
3: Thank you, Alan. Lovely to t- talk with you.
0: That was cartoonist Allison Bechtel speaking with our producer Ellen Finn. Allison will be back to speak at St. Thomas University March the 4th. The lecture is open to the community. By the way, Dikes to Watch Out For is now available on Audible. It's true. Well, that has been quite a show. Thank you for joining us here on Minnesota Now. The weather, you're going to be talking about the weather, absolutely. Temperature right now in the Twin Cities is 55 degrees 55 in Rochester, Austin checks in with a 59 degree temperature reading, 52 in Appleton, 51 in St. Cloud, cool spot, really not a surprise, it's Grand Marais, still relatively warm though, 35 degrees along the shores of Lake Superior. Rain and snow possible today across northern Minnesota, and we're talking about abnormally warm weather in the south, winter storm watch for northwestern Minnesota kicks in tomorrow as this system starts moving through with snow. Tomorrow, and it looks like it could be a little slick. So we'll keep you up to date on that. Have a great rest of the day.